listening to Cleaning the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. I've decided to call this episode a Samaritan, you say? This is really a companion episode with the last episode, which was racism, faith, and worship. Oh my. The kind of the basis for this or, or starting uh, the introduction for this, which was also the introduction for the last episode, is Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And some translations say your spiritual service of worship, that we are to be living and holy sacrifices. And as living and holy sacrifices, um, this is our spiritual service of worship. As I shared in the last episode, um, this is can be perceived as being somewhat abstract, especially because the word worship is in here. And today we almost exclusively define worship by a worship service and what takes place in a worship service. But the the depth and breadth of what God considers to be worship is a uh, encompasses all of life. And every day, uh, throughout every day, choices are made, uh, opportunities for worshiping God or not worshiping God. Um, because worship, the, the bigger picture of worship, all takes place outside of a worship service. And if you, you were to look at, just imagine the earth and imagine every square inch of the earth, um, all the space around the earth, and label it worship. And then with, within that sphere of worship, we have churches uh, dotting the planet. And then within churches... We have worship services uh, dotting those churches. Uh, those worship services taking place perhaps multiple times throughout any given week. But our main focus, our main concern, our main drive and priority, uh, though, is these little tiny dots that, that represent worship services. This passage in Romans 12.1 is, is talking about as living and holy sacrifices. How we are to be all consumed with our spiritual service of worship. And what, what I have come to believe this passage is, is saying uh, 
in kind of concrete terms is uh, the the two greatest commands that, that Jesus said all the commands can be summed up in the two greatest commands, to love God with our heart, mind, and soul, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what I believe this is saying. But what does that look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. It looks like the gospel accounts of Jesus. Uh, what he said, where he was, who he said it to, where he said it to them, why he said it to them, uh, why he chose uh, the disciples that he chose who would become apostles. How come he didn't choose anyone from the established leadership in the church of the day? Uh, he, he chose regular working stiffs, so to speak. Many of them manual laborers, uh, fishermen. Um, Jesus is the, the picture for us of worship. He, uh, after the fall, um, he is the first born not to be born in this world sinful. So he is our example, our model of, for what it looks like to be a living and holy sacrifice. And every time we deviate from that, we begin to enter into this uh, place of deception of, for, for false reasoning. And it's not only that we become deceived, but we also deceive ourselves and begin to justify all kinds of actions and circumstances. And every time we do this, it, it causes harm to others. We may not mean to do this to cause them harm, but, but we do uh, through neglect, through oversight. We can be just as guilty of, of, of causing harm, causing others to be oppressed by doing nothing at all, by ignoring them uh, as we are guilty of if we intentionally set out to cause them harm. Uh, we, we cannot escape being culpable just because we don't see it. Uh, we choose to ignore it. And, and hopefully this, this discussion and this episode about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter 10 will make this uh, really clear why Jesus told this parable. What's really going on in this parable, the, the much bigger picture here, you know, on a very basic level, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan is, hey, we need to uh, do under, undo others as we would have others do unto us. We, we need to love our neighbors as ourselves. We need to think of others even uh, more highly than we do ourselves. Uh, we have come to serve and not be served. And what I believe uh, two specific uh, uh, accounts in the Gospels that, that are perhaps the most perfect illustrations for us of uh, Romans 12.1, for what it looks like to be a living and holy sacrifice modeled after Jesus' own life, uh, is is first the actual account 
Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well, which is what the last episode uh, was about. And so I'm not going to uh, repeat that except to, by way of some uh, contrast and comparisons with this episode with the parable of the Good Samaritan. As you probably picked up, both of them have Samaritans in them. One, a woman, uh, and uh, according to historical accounts, all Samaritan women were considered to be unclean. And that's why his his disciples, when they had gone to lunch or to get lunch, gone into town, and he has this encounter with the Samaritan woman, and he's still talking to her when they come back, and they go, why are you talking to this woman? It wasn't just that he was talking to a woman. It was that he was talking to a Samaritan woman, the lowest of the low. Um, so, and here... In the parable of the Good Samaritan, there is uh, the Samaritan. The Samaritan is is the hero. At least that's what uh, my earliest memories of uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's was the perception that I came away with. Is you know we need to be like the Samaritan, not not like the priest and the Levite. Boo hiss. The Samaritan he came to save the day. Now, the first time I, I really, this parable was illustrated for me was when I was really young, may, maybe five or six years old, maybe a little bit older, but I don't think I was much older than that. And my family was living uh, down in South Georgia, uh, down along uh, the coast of Georgia. And we had vacation Bible school in the summer, and we would meet in uh, family members' homes who, who were members of the church we belonged to. And I remember the older kids um, did a, a, a puppet show for the younger kids about the parable of the Good Samaritan. They did it back then. It was, was kind of a... It's probably uh, one of those new ideas, but um, where you used pipe cleaners and you form them into, you know, stick figures of, of animals and people. And, and that's what the older kids used to, to put on this puppet show for us. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. You know, I can see myself where I was sitting and the puppet show in, in front of us. And, uh, it just, you know, the message just, stuck to me and, and and probably part of it was because it was the older kids uh in the church you know not that much older you know maybe four or five years older who were doing this and and so as a younger kid you you really paid a lot of attention because you you looked up to these older kids you know what was not ever told to us as kids, and I'm not sure whether uh, people that uh, we went to church with at that time, I don't know how, uh, what kind of students they were of the Bible, uh, but whether they knew this or not, what they did not ever tell us 
what I, I never heard taught was why it was so significant that Jesus uses a, a Samaritan to, to be the good guy, to do what was right, to, to be moved with compassion and to stop, to care for this victim when the priest and the Levite had passed by. Now, this was, this was in the early 60s. This, this was right during the civil rights movement. And uh, this was the time when uh, there were separate drinking fountains, uh, separate bathrooms, all of those restrictions uh, uh, for uh, black people, for African Americans, that, that as a, uh, a white person in the South, um, I was allowed to go into all of those those places, there were no restrictions whatsoever on my movements, and you know, the Samaritan. I mean, if if to contextualize this, you know, Jesus telling this this parable to this interpreter of the law to the early 1960s in the Southern United States in the place where I was at, at, at this time of civil rights. Uh, and you said this Samaritan, okay, for, for, you, for you to understand this, uh, it's kind of like the way we as white people view black people. That would have never been told to us. I mean, we would have never made uh, a black man or a black person uh, at that time, the good guy, the guy that did what was right when the majority white culture was not doing uh, what was right. They, in fact, uh, black people symbolized what the church was doing uh, wrong. It, it, it made the church stand out for who they really were in their faith. Uh, their practices, their attitudes, and certainly for not loving their neighbors as themselves. Uh, and I could talk a lot, a lot more about that and what what my own personal experiences were uh, at that time in the South and who it was uh, that was most adamantly against civil rights. Uh, in 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 my neighborhood, uh, in in the churches uh, that uh, were in my community, and even in the city, on a much larger scale, you know, those who would have been considered to be white evangelicals were the ones who were the most resistant to civil rights for uh, integration. And um, so I want to start out, be because I brought racism up in the last episode, I really want to frame this parable talking about this, uh, not exclusively based on racism. That, that is not the central focal point of this parable. There's a much bigger picture going on, but it is certainly... Uh, a, a key point that 
Jesus is trying to make, especially based on how this parable comes about, why it comes about. And so I, I want to uh, just, just read through uh, this account in, in Luke, beginning with verse 25 in chapter 10. Read it all the way through and then uh, discuss it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The expert in the law answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replies, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, and that's, this is the beginning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the, the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And some translations say he was moved with compassion. Verse 34. The Samaritan, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these, he says to the interpreter of the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus then told him, go and do likewise. Before just diving right into this, I want to um, frame this. In the context of worship. If you listen to the previous episode about the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, she brings up worship. And she says, our, my, our fathers worshiped in these mountains, but your people, the Jews, say if you want to worship God, you have to come to Jerusalem. And Jesus follows that up with uh, a time is coming. In fact, it is already here uh, when 
the worshipers that God, his father, desires are those who will worship him in the spirit and in truth. And you suddenly realize, well, everybody doesn't realize it, obviously, because those words, uh, worshiping God in the spirit and in truth, have, have been relegated to a worship service. And that's where you hear those that expression uh, for worship and what's about to take place in a worship service uh, to describe that. Uh, but worship that he's talking about and, and the worship that God desires is, is that description of worship that I talked about at the beginning of, of this episode that, that everything outside of a a church building and in in a worship service that would take place there everything outside of that is the most critical part of our worship and where it's supposed to take place and and Jesus gives us some insight into that when he says a time is coming in fact it's it's already here and he says that because he's there in that moment at that place in time in history, literally standing there talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and they're talking about worship. And the the, the true worshipers that, that God, his Father, desires are those who will worship him in the spirit and in truth. And what is taking place there outside of Jerusalem and away from, from where the Samaritans worshiped in the mountains, that is a picture of of worship. That Jesus being a living and holy sacrifice, our model for what that looks like, he, he is the first living and holy sacrifice born in a sinful world. He is presenting a picture of our spiritual service of worship. His encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And that's what is taking place here with the Samaritan on the road to Jericho uh, who is moved with compassion for this victim on the side of the road who has been robbed and beaten and stripped and, and left for dead. So that's the, the context that I want to frame what we're going to talk about in this parable of the Good Samaritan, that it, it is, it's threefold what Jesus is presenting here. He, in the context of worship, he is first presenting in the context of worship what the condition of the church was when he came, and it was because of the leadership. It rested completely with the leadership. That's one. The actual condition of the Jewish leaders and thus the church. The second thing that he's presenting here is what he came to do to fix it. 
by offering up his life for us, being that unblemished, pure, and undefiled sacrifice, allowing his own blood to be shed to atone for our sins. That's the second thing. And the third thing that the parable of the Good Samaritan that, that Jesus is, is presenting is what worship, what our understanding first and then our fulfillment of it is supposed to look like after he has offered his life up and presented, paid the bride price, presented us with this new marriage contract, the covenant of grace, and offering it to us as a proposal of marriage. And of course, when we accept his proposal of marriage, the gospel, we are betrothed to him, considered to already be married to him. I want to in light of this, uh, read again uh, a definition of worship that, that I have come up with. Um, worship is everything we say and do, everywhere and at all times, in the denial of self, as offerings through our sacrifices, slash deeds, slash works, unto the Lord that fulfills what it means to love the Lord our God with our hearts, minds, and souls, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, especially that which we do outside the camp as we bear Christ's reproach. So looking at the beginning of this parable, after just reading this definition of worship, and thinking about this parable in the context of worship. Um, and, and I will add even a little bit more. You remember uh, in the seven woes, one of the things that Jesus confronts uh, the leaders with, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, the interpreters of the law, he says, you know, the people should do as you say. Because you're you're rightly interpreting scripture, you're 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 preaching and teaching the truth. They should do as you say, but not as you do, because you don't do what it is you are telling everyone else to do. And this is all in the context of worship. We think that if we have the truth of salvation, the gospel in Jesus, that what it means to do, not just be hearers of the words, but doers of the word, we interpret that as evangelism, sharing our faith. And that's just such a, a little tiny part of it. And it's not, I don't know that that's even really qualifies uh, honestly, as, as worship, an, an act of worship. So we, we really have to understand what worship is and what God considers to be an act of worship, an offering uh, that, that sacrifices and, and deeds and works are all synonymous. They're, they're all in the context of offerings unto the Lord as opposed to a 
financial offering or what we put in the offering plate on Sunday morning. That's not really a, a demonstration of spiritual service of worship or being a living and holy sacrifice. So, verse 25, On one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Today, if somebody asked us that, we would say, you know, we'd give them the gospel. You know, we'd, we'd share the plan of salvation. Um, the four spiritual laws would come out. And, uh, but this is what Jesus responds to this question. He, I love it because he, he doesn't answer it. He puts it back on this expert of the law with his own question. And, and I think as we read, as you read this through, you realize uh, he already knows that this interpreter of the law knows the right answer and is just, if he's not trying to trick Jesus, uh, he certainly is trying to feel good about himself and, and to be affirmed by Jesus in front of everyone who's uh, witnessing this, who's looking on, who's hearing it. You know, he, he wants to stand out here. This, this is completely about him, only about him. Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you understand it? How, how do you interpret this, you know, the way to inherit eternal life? Because after all, you're an expert in the law. You, you ought to already know what this, the answer to this question is. And, and he does. I mean, right away. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus immediately affirms him in this and says, you, you got it right. Uh, if you do this, uh, if, if your worship is the fulfillment of what it means to love God completely and to love your neighbor as yourself, You're, you will live because you can't truly do this without denying yourself. But the interpreter of the law, he just can't, he can't leave it alone. He's, he's just, I got this right. I'm looking pretty good in front of everybody. I need to establish myself here. Uh, he, he may be perceiving that there's a lot at stake here, this, you know, Jesus coming along, and he represents the establishment, the established church, uh, the other religious leaders. And so he's, you know, he's, he wants those who are listening on uh, to understand, one, what a wonderful person, a person of faith, how spiritual he is and how knowledgeable he is, and that uh, this guy they're following and listening to, you know, he, he's going to get him to confirm this to everybody else so that he retains his position in the community his status, 
So it says this, this expert in the law wanted to justify himself. Uh, so he asked Jesus, and this is his downfall. And who is my neighbor? You know, because I think if, if this question was, was asked to any, most of us today, maybe not all of us today, if it was asked to me, I, I might kind of think the same way this interpreter of the law did. Well, hey, I, I've been pretty good to those who, you know, physically live around me. I hope I have. You know, I, well, I can think of some times when maybe I wasn't quite as gracious and forgiving as I should have been. Uh, but, I mean, look how they acted. I mean, I, I mean, I, in some levels, I was kind of justified in doing that. Uh, but, but also, our, our tendency is to surround ourselves with people just like us. You know, ethnically, educationally, economically, uh, all of those factors. We we tend to go into those those places, and our churches are absolutely a reflection of this. At, at least in America, at, at least all the churches that I've been a part of, and uh, throughout the years in the different denominations, um, they pretty much look. Uh, homogenous uh, when it when it comes to demographics. So you know he's probably been a pretty good guy, you know, based on his own demographic and and with those who are from the same demographic. So you know Jesus could have condemned him. But he doesn't. He, he gives them this, you know, maybe today we, we call this a word picture, you know, something that he, he can get his mind around, he can visualize in his own mind. Uh, but just know this, starting out, the things that Jesus is saying, everything that he is saying here, uh, he knows to be true about this interpreter of the law. Uh, he is in the same category as this priest and Levite who passed the victim by on the other side of the road. Um, and you, you know, there's no way to prove this, but, but you just get the feeling as you, you read this that this guy might have, this interpreter law might have started getting really uncomfortable because uh, those who were in attendance, who were watching, who were listening, uh, if they, you know, were grasping what what Jesus was saying here, especially if they've been hanging out f with him for a while, uh, heard his messages, uh, seen. Um, him carry out those messages within their uh, in their presence. In fact, he he has taken them along to demonstrate uh, through his own life um, the fulfillment of what he's preaching and teaching to to give life uh, examples of this and discipleship. 
I mean, that's what this is. It's discipleship. It's not just telling people, but it's, you know, almost literally taking them by the hand and say, come with me and let's go. Let's go here. Let's go there. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's meet these people. Uh, let's love these people. Let's serve these people. Let's think more highly of this, these people than we do ourselves. That's what Jesus has been doing. And so it, it might have been become this, this very uncomfortable setting for this uh, interpreter law very quickly. Uh, but what's he going to say? Is he going to storm out and uh, that's going to make him look bad? He, he's just got to sit there. He's just got to stand there. Sit there, stand there. He doesn't really say, uh, but he's got to take this. He, he's got to ride this out to the very end. So Jesus says, in response to, to this interpreter saying, and who is my neighbor? He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Um, I've heard people talk about this, and they say this victim was uh, a Jew, was Jewish, but there's really nothing that I've been able to find that, that gives that away at all. In fact, um, culturally, and, and I think, you know, in some ways today, uh, there, there's also indications of this. Um, what you're wearing, what th this person would have been wearing, his clothes would have probably given away who he was, what, what his culture was, what his status was. But they've been, his clothes have been stripped bare, so he's, he's just this neutral victim on the side of the road. So maybe he was a Jew, maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was a Samaritan. I don't know. You know, that could have fed into the motive for the priest and the Levite passing him by. Uh, it also says that they left him half dead, which means he was half alive. Um, you know, in if this priest or Levite had come into contact with someone who was was dead, and which they may have thought. You know, he probably is dead. Or maybe if he's not dead, uh, he might, if I stop to help him and I touch him and try and help him out, you know, in the first place, he might be somebody who's unclean, which is going to make me unclean. Or if he dies on me, uh, then I'm around a corpse. And that means, that's, you know, according to, to Jewish law, that means that, that I'm unclean. Uh, or he may be dead to begin with. And if that's so, then, then they would have to go through a ceremonial cleansing, a purification process that lasted, I think, seven days. Uh, and if they were on their way down this road, uh, it, it, it was because they had business somewhere. They, they had uh, a purpose it had to do, most likely, with their faith and their position as priest and Levite, uh, and they didn't. They saw that as taking precedent, not could not be interrupted uh, by stopping 
to do anything for this victim on the side of the road. Now, just to give you a little uh, geographical uh, insight, this road between Jerusalem and Jericho uh, was really steep. Um, it was 18 miles long. Jerusalem was 2,500 feet above sea level, and Jericho was 825 feet below sea level. So it is a very steep road and uh, could even be described as, as treacherous just because of how steep it was, uh, how long and steep it was, but also it had a lot of uh, places where robbers uh, could hide and uh, prey upon those coming down this road who were by themselves maybe or uh, without any security uh, with them uh, or a group with them. So it was very easy to, uh, uh, for them to attack someone and then retreat and, and be able to hide and, and get away. Uh, because of this, because there was a lot of bloodshed along this road, it, it was called the, the bloody way or the, the bloody road or path. You get the idea. Uh, it, it wasn't a road that you would just casually go strolling along. Uh, you, you had to have a reason to go down this road to sometimes risk life and limb in order to to travel along it. So, you know, in all fairness to the priest and the Levite who came along this path, um, seeing uh, this victim on the side of the road, they could have... Uh, like us, many of us, uh, maybe we've had have experienced similar things. Uh, you know, if a a, a neighborhood, a part of town has a a bad reputation, we go around it, even though there may be really wonderful, good people living uh, in these communities, in these neighborhoods. Uh, a lot of believers living in these neighborhoods. Uh, but they're trapped there uh, because of economics or economics in uh, ethnicity uh, or both. Um, they're trapped there. And there's some bad folks that, that live in, in some of these communities. And, and we've heard the stories uh, reported on the news of, of people being murdered or beaten up or robbed or, or drugs being sold. And so you know, we aren't moved with compassion for those folks living in those communities. And, and so uh, we avoid them. We go around them. Um, we generally are on our way someplace, uh, from home to work, uh, from home uh, to a movie, uh, from home to go shopping, all kinds of things, from home to, to church, um, anything that, that, that you can imagine where it is possible to, in your travels, take different routes so you don't even have to see those neighborhoods or the people living in those neighborhoods. Uh, in fact, you can... Uh, 
you are in a position because of your own particular demographics, which usually involves uh, race, the color of your skin, the color of our skin. I'm not going to say yours because uh, being a uh, older white man in America, there there are certainly things that, that I can do and places I can go and have been able to that, that everyone else isn't necessarily, has necessarily been free to do that. So living in, in certain neighborhoods uh, is not necessarily something that is, is free to everyone. Uh, I mean, you know, you can imagine all the different scenarios that can be added or included in this. But the priest and the Levite, they come across this victim. They don't know whether he's dead or alive, and they pass by on the other side of the road. Uh, more than likely, as, as quickly as they can. And the reason I say this is uh, there, there's another possibility, too, um, that the robbers and thieves that, that attacked this victim, uh, they might be hanging around somewhere just waiting to uh, jump on somebody else, uh, looking for, for new victims to rob and, and strip and leave for dead. Or... What if it's a trap? What if this person lying on the side of the road is, is faking it? And as soon as I go over there, uh, he's going to grab me and, and his friends are going to jump out and, and they're going to beat me up and rob me and leave me for dead. Uh, but, you know, we don't, we don't know. But it's all of that are, are possibilities and... You know, fear is real, and you try and listen to your gut uh, when you get into situations where that might be threatening or uh, dangerous. We don't know. We just have no idea. All we know is uh, what Jesus tells us about this situation, and he's trying. He's trying to make a point that doesn't really have to do with those things, obviously. Uh, it says, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He was moved with compassion for him. There is one thing that, that Jesus includes with all three uh, of these individuals that occurs for all of them, and that is that they all saw the victim lying there. It's not an accident that, that he points that out, that they came upon this victim and they saw him lying there. And this the, the Greek word um, for 
saw is to stare at, uh, to discern clearly, uh, either physically or, or mentally. Uh, to perceive, to uh, take heed. So, all right. You know, when you are in a situation and suddenly kind of the hairs on the back of your neck may may stand up, you know, if there, there's something uh, fear-related or, or maybe... Um, it's just a circumstance that's not necessarily fear-related, but it has to do with your own personal schedule and agenda and what you're trying to get done for yourself that, that a lot of times is all based on wants and has nothing to do with needs. Uh, but you get into a situation, you're confronted with a situation like, like these three uh, characters that Jesus has inserted in this parable. And think about what happens uh, in your mind. It's like it just suddenly goes on, overdrive kicks in, and, and you're, you're starting to imagine all kinds of scenarios and um, where you're going, you know, what, what you're supposed to be why you're supposed to be going there, you know, the things that you have to do, and you may have a million other things. Well, I've got all this stuff back home I have to do, and, you know, and, and I only got so much money and time, and you know what I'm saying. So think about as each one comes up to this victim, all of the processing that begins to take place in their minds. And some of that is you can rest assured is trying to uh, reason out or justify out they're not stopping uh, coming up with all kinds of, of scenarios and things I mean just you know what I'm talking about you, you've all of us have had a million experiences like that in our lives uh, and I'm sure as they, the priest and the Levite, as they go around this victim, they're continuing to think about this. Uh, and what ifs, and should I have done this or that, or oh no, I shouldn't because, you know, I have to follow my my higher calling with God, and uh, that comes first, and um, all of these, all of these scenarios. But the Samaritan doesn't have to think about it after he passes him by. He doesn't even get partially around him and go back. You know, change his mind, uh, realizes the wrong thing, and turn around and go back. Which, incidentally, the priest and the Levite both could have done as well. No, it says when the Samaritan saw this victim, he obviously saw it with different, a different perspective, uh, a different discernment, uh, a, a different um, heart orientation uh, in his life. It says he was moved with compassion, which we can only surmise that the priest and the Levite, who being priests, 
and Levite in their positions, their roles uh, it, with the Jewish faith as, as leaders, um, why were they not moved with compassion? One can only imagine what this poor interpreter of the law is thinking uh, at, at that moment when Jesus inserts the Samaritan uh, who represents a race of people that the Jews hate, despise, consider to be less than human, that Jesus said, he, not the priest and the Levite, he, the Samaritan, was moved with compassion. Jesus is, I think, by inference, saying the same thing to this um, interpreter of the law. He might as well be included in this. Jesus doesn't say it was a priest, a Levite, and interpreter of the law, but he's included. He's part of the leadership body. He's, he's one of the ones who uh, is, is teaching and preaching, but not living what he's telling everyone else to do. It should be obvious at this point that Jesus has inserted himself as the Samaritan here, as the good guy uh, in this parable, which is, again, such an affront to this interpreter of the law. And it, most interpretations of, of these passages, at least all the ones I've read, all see uh, Jesus as uh, inserting himself here as the Samaritan. That doesn't necessarily have to be true, uh, but uh, I believe it, it, it is, and I will explain uh, why it is. But first, I want to just make a few comments about the priest and the Levite, the, the characters that, that Jesus has included in this parable. Uh, it's the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, the victim on the side of the road, uh, the robbers, um, the, uh, I, the donkey or the beast of burden that the Samaritan uses to uh, carry uh, this victim once he's cleaned him up, attended uh, his, his wounds, uh, and then the innkeeper. He takes him to an inn for recuperation. Um, this it's going to sound really harsh, but you have to go back to uh, Jesus when he went into the temple and he turned the, the money changers' tables over and he said, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. Uh, his house is a house of prayer and uh, you, you have so defiled it. Um, you, you were turn this place in, into a place of harlotry and, and adultery. Uh, it's not the act of exchanging money, you know, making the people, they had to come in, they, they couldn't use their own money to purchase 
animals for sacrifice to to offer up. They had to have temple currency, and so they would charge them the exchange rate. They would make money off of uh, buying temple currency, and then of course they would make money off of selling the the animals, the the doves, or whatever it was that that they were going to offer up, um, and maybe. I don't know. Maybe maybe they had to exchange money in order to even make a donation, you know, to the church. I don't know. But that really wasn't the point. That wasn't what Jesus was. Why Jesus was calling them uh, thieves and robbers and, and turning his father's house, a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. It was because. Because the leaders were so deceived, they had become the deceivers of others. They, they preached and taught and rightly interpreted Scripture, even salvation, the message of salvation. But Jesus said the people should, should do as you say, but not as you do, because you don't do what you preach. You know, you, you are hearers of the word and not doers of the word, and doing the word is worship. You know, what we do, uh, those, those deeds, uh, those works, those sacrifices, serving and not being served, thinking more highly of others than we do ourselves, uh, that's worship. Those are offerings in worship. And they because they were not fulfilling that and modeling that. They themselves were withholding from God fruit that was only meant for him, which is idolatry, adultery. But by virtue of this, they were deceiving those under their authority, under their care, and they were causing them to also steal from God. The allegiance was to that system, to the temple, to everything that it took to maintain and keep that going, and for those people in leadership to hold on to their positions. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples in, in Mark 12 at, at the very end of that chapter when he points out uh, the scribes, um, He's pointing out the scribes there to his disciples, but he also says this exact same thing in the seven woes. He said, these leaders, they like to parade around in robes and be seen in public places and take the the chief seats, the important seats uh, in the synagogues, and they devour the houses of the widows. That's what Jesus is, is talking about. And he says... He also said uh, in, in the, the seven woes, he says, you heap such a burden on those uh, under your care and authority uh, by putting on them loyalty and faithfulness and obedience to this system, and yet you won't lift a finger to help them. Not only that, you, you devour the houses of the widows. Uh, you take away their, her treasure. If you want to talk about Jesus really at this point, uh, talking about the priest and the Levite passing by and the Samaritan 
being moved with compassion that he has just gotten all up into this interpreter of the law's face uh, with both barrels. Uh, what Jesus is, is literally saying to this interpreter of the law is that there is no difference between those robbers who came down and robbed and beat and, and stripped and left for dead this, this man, this victim on the side of the road, and the priest and the Levite. They are exactly the same. There is really no other way that we can look at this, especially when we look at Jesus going into the temple and saying, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves and robbers. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying in this parable of the Good Samaritan. There is no difference between the priest and the Levite and what they're doing to those under their care, who they have authority over, and what these robbers have done. And, and remember, uh, like the Samaritan woman at the well where worship comes up, she brings it up and talks about the true worshipers who will worship in the spirit and in truth. And she makes a point of saying, you know, our, my father's worshiped in these mountains, but your people say you have to, to worship God in Jerusalem if you want to worship him. You've got to come to our church because it's the most happening place. You will truly experience the presence of God uh, in our church uh, for whatever reasons. Um, both of these, the parable of the Good Samaritan and uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, both take place outside of Jerusalem, the city. Um, it is a picture, both of these are a picture of what worship is supposed to look like and where it's supposed to take place, what's really important to God. And it's the, the road... Uh, to Jericho that leaves Jerusalem. Um, if you look on a map from that period, um, the road to Jericho is connected to Jerusalem um, at the Sheep's Gate. You know, Jerusalem had all, a lot of different gates on its different sides. There, there was actually even a water gate, which is kind of interesting. Um, but there, there is a sheep's gate, and the Jericho Road, according to this map that I looked at from this period of time, is connected to, the Jericho Road is connected to the sheep's gate. Uh, it, it could not be any more clear. Now, this may surprise you. I don't know. It may not. But you may not have even ever thought about it. But... Do you know what Jesus' present ministry is? When I ask this question, it's, you know, intercessor is usually the, the answer uh, that most people will give. But it's found in, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. It says, but now he, talking about Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry 
by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So this is talking about Jesus because he was without sin, that he could be the offering for all of us by the sacrifice of his own life, his own blood being shed. And what that has given rise to now is his more excellent ministry. And the word ministry, his ongoing now, as we speak, ministry, it's the uh, Greek word uh, uh, liturgia. It's basically where we get the word liturgy from, uh, which is, of course, tied to worship. But it, uh, its meaning, according to Strong's, is the public function as priest, liturgy. Uh, or as almsgiver. Jesus' ongoing ministry, his more excellent ministry, is that of both priest and Levite. This Samaritan, now you can really see that this Samaritan represents Jesus because he, the priest and the Levite, Two offices, two separate offices, uh, positions uh, in the Jewish faith, they pass him by. The Samaritan fulfills both, both roles as priest and Levite. But that's not all. Guess what each of our ongoing ministries is? Because remember, Romans 12.1 says to be a living and holy sacrifice, which is our spiritual service of worship. And Jesus being our example, our model for the first living and holy sacrifice. His life, everything we know about him, uh, that's a picture of what it looks like, uh, our spiritual service of worship. Uh, in Philippians 2, chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says... But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all, with all of you. Perhaps this won't come as a great surprise, but the word for service in this passage is this exact same Greek word, liturgia, uh, priest and Levite, uh, that is Jesus's more excellent ministry. Paul saying, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, your service is that for being both priest and Levite, because this is tied to worship. And it's both sides of that. It's both word and deed. See, what, 
the, the thing that we're so hung up on is, is we, Scripture really presents two very, very separate and distinct uh, definitions for uh, what word deed ministry is. And what we have only um, attached ourselves to is, is in terms of uh, the way church, the order of the church and the way its, its government functions. Um, we look at uh, word ministry in terms of elders and or or pastors or both uh depending on on each denomination's uh particular view of what church government is supposed to look like and the way it's supposed to function and what offices uh are supposed to be held and exercised within a church um and deed ministry is attached to uh, deacons almost exclusively uh and of course both of those offices, elder or deacon, is tied to uh, specific uh, gifts and, and, and uh, experience and qualifications. And in most instances, only uh, to men fulfilling those, those offices. And so... If you think about it, if if elders and pastors um, are the ruling body, as well as um, teaching, uh, preaching being being associated with them as their primary concern and function, then then what area do you think is going to get the priority in any given church body? Word ministry, of course. Uh, those who have authority, those who are uh, ruling over a congregation, uh, the congregation is accountable to. Uh, but that aside, what happens for everybody else in the church who doesn't qualify uh, to be a deacon uh, or an elder? What are they supposed to do? What, what is their function? Um, you know, maybe they can teach Sunday school class under certain conditions. Uh, you know, they they can work with the youth. They can do a number of different things. But but what this has done is, is kind of compartmentalized uh, worship and our faith and the way we function as a, a church bodies, which is very very dysfunctional. Uh, if you tried to operate this way as 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 an individual family, uh, because what ends up happening is that those who fulfill and are recognized and placed into offices are uh, more esteemed, uh, kind of have a little bit of celebrityhood on on some levels. Uh, they stand out, and what's everybody else supposed to do? What's the function? What's the value and worth? And that's why I say that there are two completely different uh, ways that that Scripture in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, for that matter, defines word deed ministry. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, perhaps more than 
any place else uh, reveals this to us, is that outside of the church, the interior of the church, and the way that it functions, and the different roles and the order of it, it does not carry over outside the doors outside the camp, outside the city gates. There is an absolute level playing field when it comes to worshiping God through both word and deed. There's no pastor, there's no elder, there's no deacon, there's no doctor, there's no lawyer, there's no Sunday school teacher, there's no youth leader, there, there's no layperson who just sits in the pew. We are. It is an absolute equal level playing field when it comes to what God wants from us, the worshipers that he desires who will worship him in the spirit and in truth. And there is a great picture of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, beginning with verse 10. Paul says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Is he doing this just for you? Of course not. It's for this bigger picture uh, beyond ourselves. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God word, ministry, or offering unto God. Giving thanks to God in all things in Christ Jesus' name. Remember in Hebrews 13, let your sacrifices be the praises of your lips and the deeds that you do unto others. For with such sacrifices God is pleased. Sacrifices or offerings. The thank offering and the deed offering. And it goes on to say, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, and this word service is liturgia, priest and Levite, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, Jesus, who's more Excellent ministry now is that of priest and Levite, and our more excellent ministry because of his is as both priest and Levite. After the Samaritan sees the man lying on the side of the road and is moved with compassion, he goes to him, not thinking about himself, perhaps his own danger, uh, putting his purpose for being on that road, uh, if it was business, whatever it was. Uh, he, he puts 
the need of this injured man above his own wants. And each of us has that opportunity. I wouldn't say just every day, but multiple times every day. We are, God confronts us with the choice to make between the needs of others and our own selfish wants. By his stripes, we are healed. Jesus has come to, by offering up his life, uh, he has come to offer us living water uh, to cleanse us from the inside out, not just to, to bandage our wounds and, and to clean us up on the outside, which is all uh, the first covenant did, the, the covenant under the law, uh, was all about ceremonial cleansing, um, outward cleansing. Jesus has come to cleanse us from the inside out. And, and you know, we get a picture of that. Um, yes, he's bandaging his wounds and pouring oil and cleaning him up, but then look where it is that, that, that he's taking him, what, what he's doing. He's not just leaving him there. It says, then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Uh, in Matthew 11, chapter 11, uh, verse 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He wants to take our heavy yoke that, that will crush us under, and that's the yoke that the religious leaders had placed on those under their care. And this victim represents that. And they won't even lift a finger. The priest and the Levite goes by this victim. That victim is us, is the bride that Jesus came to redeem. Do you realize that? That's who this victim symbolizes, and that's why it doesn't say what nationality he was, that he has been stripped, because none of that matters anymore, that after Jesus has resurrected, God is going to make a level playing field, that he's going to remove the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. There will no longer be two flesh, but only one flesh. Uh, with God, there's no Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female. All are invited. The proposal of marriage, the contract has been written now for all of us. And that's who this victim symbolizes. And he takes this victim who's unconscious and think about it. There is never a presentation of the message of salvation given 
to this victim here. The message is everything else. What I just read in 2 Corinthians, that if we are generous, if, if we, through our generosity to others in need, Christ will be revealed. People will offer up prayers of thanksgiving and praise to God. Uh, you won't be able to, as Jesus said, if you, everybody shut their mouths, all of creation would cry out. Even the rocks would sing his praises. Jesus takes this victim to the end. He brings all of us to the end, which is a place where our citizenship has been reserved for us in heaven. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We are already seated in a heavenly realm with Jesus when we accept his proposal of marriage. This in, uh, it's only used, the word, the Greek word that's translated as the word in is only used one time in the entire New Testament. And it means a public house for the reception of strangers. We not only are strangers uh, to God, but once we accept Jesus, his proposal of marriage, and are betrothed to him, we then become strangers in this place that we're in, on earth, because our citizenship is now in heaven. But until, until that is fully realized, uh, when we are with him at the marriage of the Lamb, at the end of this age, uh, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, the innkeeper, who is, according to the definition, is not just an innkeeper, but a host. We are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And, and this word for innkeeper, again, the Greek word has been translated as the word innkeeper. It is only used one time in the entire New Testament. Jesus is talking about what he has come to do and what worship is supposed to look like and be coming from the true worshipers that God desires who will worship him in, in spirit and in truth. And remember when Jesus came into the world, when he was born, when his parents had to go to Bethlehem because a census was being taken and that was their, their home place and they got there and they found out that there was no place for them to stay, that the, that the inn was full and they, they had to go out and stay in a stable, a lowly, smelly stable where animals were kept and Jesus was, was born and laid in a manger well, that wasn't just presenting based on this parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus is, is, is giving to this interpreter of the law. It wasn't that just the end 
was full, that there was no room for him at the inn. There was no room for him in Israel. He was rejected by the religious leaders. They didn't recognize him. They had the description of him uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, all they had to do was was hold it up next to him, and, and they should have been able to recognize him. But, but they didn't recognize him because they were so deceived and they had been become such deceivers of everyone else. They didn't recognize Jesus because God was not their father. They were living in an adulterous relationship with the world. The, the abomination that brings desolation was standing where it should not, in the holy place. Jesus came to make room for all of us in the inn when there was no room for him in this inn. He has made a place for each one of us. Finally, Jesus gets to the end of the parable and he says back to the interpreter of the law, the expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? You know, you just got to imagine that, that this guy is feeling really, really, really uncomfortable and, and he has no choice. I mean, there's no argument that he can make because he's an, an expert in the law. I, I think he really gets so much more than than just what the this answer he gives at the end means see he's getting the big picture that that Jesus hasn't just been talking about a priest and a levite he has been talking uh, about him as well uh, the expert in the law replied the one who had mercy on him Jesus told him go and do likewise now, one interpretation I, I read, uh, speculation, is that he doesn't, the expert in the law doesn't say Samaritan because they hated Samaritan so much. They were so despised. He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan because the Samaritan was the good guy in this. And that, that just could not possibly be. And I'm sure that created an even greater division between him and other leadership that he knew and hung out with and rep probably reported on this to them. Uh, but, you know, he knew the one who uh, had mercy on him, showed him mercy. And, you know, some interpretations of this last line have, have been used to, to establish... The, the biblical basis, the scriptural basis for mercy ministries, that we have to have mercy ministries. We need mercy ministries. They're biblical. Uh, but again, what I described earlier about offices in the church, deacons and elders, uh, you know, being identified with word, deed, ministry, but that's, that's only uh, one um, definition of it, and that's in the terms of inside the church and, and the way the form and function of church government but 
you know, mercy ministry, if, if it is this category, which, you know, we, we try and compartmentalize everything about our faith. But that's not what this is about. This isn't about uh, establishing a scriptural basis that we have to have ministries of mercies in our church. You have to go back to the first question that the interpreter of the law asks, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus saying, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Those who love God with their heart, mind, and soul, and their neighbors as themselves, the evidence for it will be mercy and compassion, will be taking on uh, the superior ministry, the more excellent ministry, that is Jesus, for being both priest and Levite. We are both. All ministry springs from mercy and compassion because it springs from love. And we are all equally called to be merciful and compassionate regardless of our stations in lives. When, when the disciples asked Jesus what the basis would be for separating the sheep and the goats, he said, those who have done it unto the least of these have done it unto me. That is a personal you without exception. If all you do is give your money for other people to do it, then you have no treasure stored in heaven. You cannot claim to love God with your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself unless you, each one of us individually, have worshipped God by loving Him and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Amen. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonca, posing the question, is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? Until next time.